Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. This episode we'll be talking about the people that are often forgotten when we talk about World War II, those who for one reason or another couldn't make it to the front line but still wanted to do their part. I am, of course, talking about the Home Guard. The Home Guard were volunteers who defended the 5,000 miles of Britain's coastline in the event of an invasion by Germany. They were originally called the Local Defence Volunteers. And why were they formed? Well, on Friday the 10th of May 1940, the Germans had started their attack on Belgium and the Netherlands using soldiers dropped by parachutes. British troops in mainland Europe were pushed back to the channel ports. Many people feared that the Germans would soon invade Britain. On the evening of Tuesday the 14th of May 1940, the government made an urgent appeal on the radio to all men aged between 17 and 65 They wanted all men not already serving in the armed forces to become part-time soldiers, and within 24 hours of the radio broadcast, a quarter of a million men had volunteered. By the end of July, this number had risen to over a million. Many of the men who joined the Home Guard were those who could not join the regular army because their daytime jobs were necessary to keep the country running. They included farm workers, bakers, teachers, grocers bank staff and railway workers. Other men who joined were either too young or too old to join the regular army. When most people in this country think of the Home Guard, the bumbling characters from Dad's army spring to mind, a bunch of older men playing at being soldiers. But in reality, the Home Guard were literally the last line of defence. The 11th Gloucester Battalion, based in Bristol, was seriously involved in the planned defence of Bristol in the event of an invasion. Bristol's front lay along the line of the River Trim, which had deep gullies that made natural obstacles. This meant, though, that several of the men had their homes in what would have been the battle zone. So when the church bells rang to signal an invasion, those men would have to leave their families and report to HQ, leaving their families behind and not knowing whether they'd have a home to come back to.
latest serving of the Word of the Week, I give you Sluggerbed, which is a 16th century word for a person who stays in bed after the usual or proper time to get up. Today, we say teenagers. It's not generally realised now, but having seen the chaos caused in France by refugees clogging the roads, strict orders were issued that this must not happen here. The civilian population had to stay put, whatever happened. And one of the most important tasks the Home Guard had was to see that these orders were obeyed. And with Avonmouth on one side and Filton with the huge Bristol Aeroplane Company factory on the other, the area was an important one and also a prime target for nightly bombing over the next 18 months. In 2005, Alan John Yeatman told the BBC what life was like in the Home Guard. On any evening, my father would be away at his ARP duties in a light rescue squad, my mother at her YMCA canteen in Westbury Village, and I wherever my Home Guard unit sent me, guarding bridges, electricity installations, or unexploded bombs. Each morning, we came home wondering if the house was still there and the others alive. It was not a comedy. Those of us youngsters waiting call-up into the services were put into a special squad under the tuition of a young officer of Lovett's Scouts, recovering from Dunkirk wounds. He got us doing some quite hair-raising things in training, including using live sticky bombs. These were glass globes like fishing net floats, containing a couple of pounds of a syrup-like explosive. They had a butter muslin covering, smeared with a brighter orange new adhesive, later to be known as Evo Stick, and then a Bakelite case in two halves. You held one by the handle, pulled out pin number one, whereupon the case sprang apart and fell off, then pin number two, and hurled it at the tank to which it stuck. The glass broke, the gooey explosive spread, and the fuse fired when you let go of the handle detonated it five seconds later. It was, in fact, a very effective anti-tank weapon, especially in street-fighting conditions. But my most vivid memory is of one of my mates swinging his bomb back over his shoulder to get a good throw and touching his back. Sergeant! A somewhat plaintive voice, two pounds of high-explosive glued immovably to his collar and very white knuckles gripping the now-live handle. It proved the efficacy of the adhesive. We had to cut away the back of his tunic. It's just been reported a burglar broke into the local police station and stole all the bathroom fixtures. An investigation is underway, but in the meantime, police have nothing to go on. Now we'll continue with our tales of the Home Guard in Bristol. Did you know on Saturday the 24th of October... 2,000 members of the various branches of the services and munitions factories, together with some eight bands and descriptive tableau of war work, paraded through the streets of Bristol. The procession covered three miles, saluting at the base in the centre, and took about an hour to complete. The salute was taken by the Lord Mayor, who was accompanied by senior officers, 
from each of the units taking part. The procession, well, it was held in connection with Bristol's campaign to enrol 5,000 women for urgent part-time war service. The procession started on the downs at 2.30pm and went down Blackboy Hill and White Ladies Road and branched off Cotham Road, emerging in Stokescroft. After going through the centre, it turned into Bridge Street, Baldwin Street and then along Broadway, before saluting at the base and continuing up Anchor Road to the finish. The band of the 16th Gloucester's Home Guard played the march past and there was a van with a loudspeaker following the parade by 15 minutes to tell the huge crowds what was happening. The first section included contingents from Flying Fox and the Wrens, as well as the AA Brigade, the Mercantile AA and Pioneer Corps. The second section consisted of 200 members of the Bristol Home Guard and this was followed by 500 members of the Cadet Corps. The Sea Cadets Bugle Band was leading the way, followed by the Army Cadets, the ATC and various others. Finally, the personnel of the Civil Defence Services and Munitions Floats were led by the Band of National Fire Service. There was also members of the Red Cross and RVS in attendance. News reports of the day say it was a very exhilarating sight and there were thousands there to watch and cheer. And it really did cheer the whole city up in these strange times of war. For our book of the week this week, I offer you I Never Knew That About Royal Britain. It's by the best-selling author, Crystal Wynne, and it explores Britain's royal past, unearthing a rich legacy of castles and palaces, cathedrals and country retreats, and all things in between, including battlefields and monuments. Really, as a book, it's something to get you into the subject matter, as they're done in short passages, but it will get you hooked. So I hope you enjoy this book. Unfortunately, like with most things, there's always a sad story, and Bristol's Home Guard is no exception. Lieutenant Reginald Walter Swain drowned in the floating harbour on the 21st of September 1941 whilst leading a fully armed and equipped party, which attempted to swim across the water and attack a shed on the other side held by the enemy in the course of a Home Guard exercise. Lieutenant Swain's wife, Frances, and son, Paul, aged 15, a member of his father's unit, were spectators of the tragedy, which happened in front of 5,000 people who lined the quayside. The initial plan was that Lieutenant Swain would be the first in the water and would take the rope that would be tied to the other side of the bank and act as a guide for all the others behind him. Three men followed Swain into the water, And it was while the attention of the crowds were now on them that no one noticed that Swain was in trouble. Those that did shouted and tried to get attention towards his plight a little more than halfway across, whose steel helmet was slowly going from view. Witnesses said that he sank like a stone. A female voice was heard to cry out, Where's Reg gone? It was Mrs Francis Swain, Lieutenant Swain's wife. The loudspeaker that was there to describe the events to the crowd calmly called out that if Lieutenant Swain is here, will he answer? 
There was no reply. That was when Paul, the son, shouted out that the old man had gone and dove into the dark waters with other members of the home guard to search, but to no avail. Paul was among about a dozen swimmers, some only half-clothed, who repeatedly dived into the inky depth and tried desperately to help the river police find his father while there was still time to save his life. The river police had taken up their positions previously in launches close at hand and swimmers had posted themselves either side of the harbour to guard against accidents. The launches followed by swimmers sped to the rescue, but Lieutenant Swain had disappeared before they could get him. The water had to be cleared to enable the police to drag with lines and some grappling hooks, and it was some 25 minutes later that Lieutenant Swain was brought to the surface. Whilst they were trying to rescue Lieutenant Swain, the other members of the storming party were reached by boats and were brought safely ashore. Once the unfortunate leader was found, doctors at the scene gave him injections for his heart. Artificial respiration was given for a few minutes at the quayside and in the ambulance on the way to the Bristol Royal Infirmary. It was thought that there was a good chance of reviving him and at the hospital he was placed in an iron lung, but the efforts to save him were in vain. Lieutenant Swain, who was 37 years old, lived at 23 Hawfield Road, St Michael's. He left a widow and two sons, Paul and John, who was aged 12, and a daughter, Anne, who was six years old and had been evacuated. When the widow, Frances Swain, was interviewed by the Daily Mirror, she said, Reg planned this manoeuvre. I went down to watch because he told me it was safe. In the same interview, Paul Swain, the son, said, after my father entered the water, I should have followed him with the rope, but there was some confusion, and while I hesitated, the other men entered the water in front of me. Suddenly, I realised my father had sunk. Lieutenant Swain was in A Company of the 9th Battalion Home Guard, and had been a member since the battalion was formed. He quickly attained commissioned rank and was a popular and efficient officer. He served part-time, his job in civilian life being with the St Anne's Board Mills. Lieutenant W. Jervis, commanding officer of the 9th Battalion, stated to the Western Daily Press and Bristol Mirror that... Lieutenant Swain was a member of the Home Guard from its inception. He was one of our most popular officers and one of the best swimmers in the district. There was no compulsion about this exercise this morning... It was Lieutenant Swain's own idea. He was so enthusiastic about it that he obtained sanction from himself and the zone commander to make this a public exercise. The men of his party developed his enthusiasm. They were all good swimmers and were keen to do this. They'd practised for months and had swum four times as far in full equipment. So confident was Lieutenant Swain that he had his own son volunteer Paul Swain in the storming party. The utmost precautions were taken to have rescue parties and medical attendants at hand. It's thought Lieutenant Swain may have been seized with a sudden attack of cramp. This tragedy has meant the loss to us of a splendid officer and the deepest sympathy of our battalion and the Home Guard as a whole will go out to the widow and family. During the inquest, Lance Corporal O'Neill described the exercise. 
Lieutenant Swain was the first in, and I was following. He was about halfway across when I could see just his tin hat in the water and no head. I thought he was resting, as he'd given no signal or sign of distress. And then I thought something was wrong. He was not moving. I swam up to him and managed to grasp him, but he sank, taking me with him, and I was compelled to let go. A verdict was returned that Reginald Swain's death was, according to medical evidence, due to the shock of motion in water while carrying out the exercise. Dr Betty Fox of the Bristol Royal Infirmary said that Swain was not dead when he arrived at the hospital, but died shortly after admission. Death was caused by heart failure, due to chronic myocarditis, which was accelerated by the shock of the water. Myocarditis, also known as inflammatory cardiomyopathy, is inflammation of the heart muscle. Symptoms can include shortness of breath, chest pain, decreased ability to exercise, and an irregular heartbeat. The doctor then went on to say Swain probably had no idea that he had an impaired heart. She said that the safety boats would have been of help if Swain had been able to help himself, but his heart had ceased to function and he went down like a stone. He is buried at St Mary the Virgin Churchyard in Redcliffe, Bristol. Unfortunately, that wasn't the only tragedy that happened to the Home Guards. As you can imagine, across the country, many things can go wrong when you're practising using dangerous equipment. For example, in Torquay, a Home Guard died as a result of the gunnery explosion on the 11th of August, 1944. His name was Gunner Walter George Horton, aged 46. He had both his arms broken and severe burns and shock, and he passed away in Gloucester City Hospital, where he had been sent for special treatment. Whilst he was there, his wife and daughter never left his side. He was an ex-serviceman and served minesweepers in World War I, and since then he'd been employed by the Torquay Corporation. His funeral had full military honours. It's quite interesting to know that even then, the Home Guard were derided. In a letter published in the Bath Chronicle and Weekly Gazette on Saturday the 19th of May, 1945, that a private in the 6th Somerset Battalion wrote, It was with a feeling approaching nausea observed that the Bath Home Guard Battalion were included in the victory parade through the streets of the city on Sunday last. Surely it would have been more becoming of that detachment to have declined, modestly to take part and to leave the field to those men and women who, by actual contact with the enemy, either by land or sea or air, had risked their lives to bring us victory. The Bath Battalions, unlike their comrades in the south and east coasts, and in our heavily blitzed cities, have had, with the exception of some relatively minor raids in April 1942, extremely little to do with the victory we have achieved, and to parade before the people of Bath in a blaze of glory disgusts me in no small measure. Nights spent in playing darts and cards in a guardroom do not, in my opinion, qualify a force of men for hero worship. This Sunday, we should have been saluting the heroes of Dunkirk, Alamine and D-Day, 
and not the men who spent their days and nights in the sleepy atmosphere of Bath. The end of World War II was obviously a very, very happy time. But it did mean we had to say goodbye to Bristol's Home Guard. The final parade saying goodbye was held on Sunday the 3rd of December 1944 with every battalion taking part, making it one of the biggest parades in wartime Bristol. Indeed, it had a six-man width column marching past the base, which was moved to College Green for the occasion. Thousands of people standing in parts, some ten deep, lined the route of the parade which dispersed at Queen Square, all cheering and clapping loudly. Included in the march for the first time since the formation of the Home Guard, a number of women auxiliaries were also there. Witnesses were struck by how many ribbons and medals were seen during the parade, the Victory Medals and Monstar being the most prominent. It's time for some back-in-the-day facts. On the 26th of September in 1965, the Rolling Stones appeared before a full house of 2,000 fans at the Colston Hall. The concert was part of the group's national tour. Also on the 26th, but in 1580, in his ship, the Golden Hind, English navigator Francis Drake arrived back in Plymouth, becoming the first Englishman to circumnavigate the world he was subsequently knighted by Queen Elizabeth I. On the 28th of September, in 1923, the Radio Times was first published and it cost only tuppence. On the 30th of September, 1967, BBC Radio 1 was launched at 7am with DJ Tony Blackburn Breakfast Show. The first record played was Flowers in the Rain by The Move. And on the 1st of October... In 1958, in the USA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA for short, was formally established. Also on the 1st of October, in 1935, Dame Julie Andrews was born. And lastly, on the 3rd of October, 1922, Rebecca Felton became the first woman senator in the US Senate. She was appointed by the governor of Georgia, to fill a vacancy following the death of a previous incumbent. I do hope you enjoyed today's tales and agree with me that they were brought to life by the brilliant voices of Marcus KP, Finley Ratnett and Simon Green from Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as Sam Vernon and Joe Wilson from Samwell St Stephen's Drama Group.
you have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>